Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Cultural Affairs, the Florida Council of Arts and Culture, and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund, the Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, and by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, and coming up on the program, the Barber Mizell family feud of 1870 demonstrates how Florida was every bit as wild as the Wild West. I remember when I married my husband, they all said, well, the Barber Mizell feud's back on again. <laughs> We'll discuss the first translation of a book about 16th century Spanish exploration. This is still a major component in the uh, historiography of early colonial Florida history. And we'll take a trip to Pelican Island, the first national wildlife refuge in the United States. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. On February 21, 1870, Sheriff David Mizell, his son Will, and brother Morgan came onto the property of Moses Barber to serve an arrest warrant. Tensions between the Barbers and Mizells had been growing for years, and the sheriff had been warned that if he set foot on Barber land, he would be killed. When the group stopped at Bull Creek, a shot was fired from behind some bushes. Sheriff David Mizell was killed, becoming the first casualty of the Barber-Mizell family feud. Bull Creek is where the ambush took place. Sandra Wise is with Crescent J Ranch at Forever Florida in Osceola County. And Bull Creek runs right through the property here in Forever Florida. Some of the history books puts it close to Holopa, which is just a few miles up the road. So this is exactly where that first shot in the big feud happened. Moses Barber came to Florida from Georgia in 1833 and originally settled near what is now McClenny, Florida. He would become one of Florida's most successful cattlemen, and by the time the Civil War started in 1860, he had 100 slaves, more than 20,000 acres of land, and nearly $120,000 worth of other property. Barber was able to build his cattle empire using the descendants of livestock brought to Florida by the Spanish in the 1500s. Florida is the first area to get cattle brought over by the Spanish. We're ahead of the people out west. Joseph Adams is from Fort Christmas Historical Park in East Orange County. We were the first to get horses, we we're the first to get hogs, and all of that, you know, all that begins to develop. The people down here are, are cattlemen, not cowboys, because you have to be a real man to work the cattle. And the they're also called cow hunters because, you know, you did have, you know, they used open range, you'd have to hunt up your cattle. Sandra Wise. Well, some of the uh, history books refer to the what we call cracker cattle as like donkeys <laughs> in that they're very small, they're bony. Some of the information all says they're not very good for either beef or milk, 
but they're very hardy. They've got good um, immune systems, external parasites, internal parasites, and that's true of the horses too, the Florida cracker horses, which are the, of that Spanish bloodline. The agriculture industry in Florida, let me say, was built on cattle ranching initially, and that was built on the back of these little cracker horses, but they're narrower, they're more agile. Um, around the Holopah, Kenansville area, um, big ranches around here, those little cracker horses could handle it. If you took like what is today known as a quarter horse, they would never make it here. Too big, can't, can't um, herd. Their primary job was herding, Although some, some folks, the cow hunters, could rope off of them, their primary um, advantage, the primary advantage they had was that they were smaller and could herd and get into the palmetto stands and so forth. Before the American Revolution, three brothers from France named William, Luke, and David Moselle came to North Carolina to settle. William's descendants eventually moved to South Georgia, Luke's to Alabama, and David's to Florida. By the time David's grandson, also named David, settled near what is now Lake City in the 1830s, the spelling of his name was changed to Mizell. Both the Mizell family and the Barber family first came to Florida in the 1830s. This was the height of the conflict between the Seminole Indians in Florida and the United States government. During the Second Seminole War, a series of forts were built throughout Florida. The forts were situated about a day's walk apart so the soldiers would have someplace safe to sleep and store their provisions at night. Many Florida cities grew up around Seminole War forts. For example, Orlando grew up around Fort Gatlin, Tampa was established at the site of Fort Brooke, and Sanford was the site of Fort Mellon. Many Florida cities retained their Seminole War fort names such as Fort Pierce, Fort Lauderdale, and Fort Myers. I mean, I'm really sympathetic to the whole point of view about how the Seminoles had their land taken away. On the other hand, an attack by the Seminoles was terrifying. Joy Wallace Dickinson writes the Florida flashbacks column for the Orlando Sentinel. They did scalp people. They used sort of guerrilla war tactics. So we know that that happened and that I think it's one of the reasons, I mean, if you were, if you were a pioneer here, you had to be a pretty tough customer. I mean, you had to be able to deal with dangerous circumstances. It wasn't Little House on the Prairie, um, especially in the 1830s and 40s and, and 50s. Mary Ida Bass Barber Shearhart is author of the book Florida's Frontier, The Way It Was. Now when they ran the Indians out, when they got the Indians and took them, Mose grabbed their cattle. He had a pretty good band of men that could do that. And the cattle weren't branded and marked. So he just, he did that. And that's how he got his, his money and his big, he, he, he owned cattle from North and South Carolina all the way down to below Okeechobee. He had cattle all along there. And, and they, they kept them branded because in those days you could brand a cow, put your brand on it. If it didn't have brand on it, you could do that. Moses Barber had a reputation for not being afraid of the Seminoles. From his homestead in North Florida, he ran his cattle farther and farther into what was still Indian territory. Moses' brother William was killed by Seminole Indians in 1841. David Mizell's family was attacked by Seminole Indians in 1838, and two of his family members were killed. 
David enlisted in the Army and spent some time at Fort Christmas. He liked what would become the Orlando area and settled here. The home located in Harry P. Lou Botanical Gardens has been expanded over the years, but it was originally the Mizell family homestead. As Moses Barber kept pushing his cattle farther and farther south, his family established homes near Kissimmee. Mary Ida Bass Barber Shearheart was born into the Mizell family, but married a barber. She still lives on property that was part of the Barber homestead in central Florida. I was born Mary Ida Bass, right here in this house. I sleep in the same room where I was born 91 years ago. And I married Bill Barber and uh, had my had four children, lived 26 years with him. And uh, then uh, I, I was single only a couple of years and I married this Cecil Sherhart that was from Texas. In January 1861, Florida became the third state to secede from the United States, helping to begin the American Civil War. Florida became the biggest supplier of beef to the Confederate Army. During the Civil War, Moses Barber lost much of his land and cattle and his slaves. He also lost his son Isaac. Two of David Mizell's sons died in the Civil War, Thomas and Joshua. His son John became a captain in the Confederate Army, and his son David was also a soldier but was ill for most of the war. The Civil War helped to intensify the differences between the Barbers and the Mizells. According to the lore I've heard from Barber descendants particularly, the, the families really hated each other even before they came to Florida. Joy Wallace Dickinson. And uh, this, is, this is sort of the Barber point of view, but that the Mizells uh, considered themselves better than the Barbers. And, uh, but when they arrived here, and, and certainly in the period that we're talking about, and after the Civil War, the Mizells were associated with the Reconstruction government. Uh, sheriff David Mizell was the sheriff of Orange County, and his brother John was a judge. And so they represented um, the Reconstruction government, the Republican Reconstruction government, that a lot of the cattlemen who were probably by heritage uh, Confederates and, and Southern Democrats, uh, you know, hated. So the Barbers were sort of, at, at least as it's usually explained, the Barbers were sort of on the old Confederacy side and the, the Mizells were, had accepted the position of being an authority from the Reconstruction Republican government. So they were really on different sides of, of feeling after the Civil War. Tensions between the Barber family and the Mizell family escalated during the late 1860s with other cattle families taking one side or the other. Moses Barber believed that Mizell family friend George Bass had stolen some of his cattle and confronted him about it. The Mizells controlled the sheriff's office and the courts, so Barber and members of his family were charged with false imprisonment for holding Bass against his will. After decades of lawlessness on the Florida frontier, Mizells charged barbers with a series of crimes, including arson, tax evasion, and polygamy. Well, he had women everywhere. Mary Ida Bass Barber Shearheart. Mose was a woman's man, and uh, he had, he had uh, women in, in Ocala and Tampa and all around, and he did, he did a lot of moving around. He didn't he really didn't. He built a house for his wives, but he didn't stay home very much. He practically lived on his horse. <laughs>
After the Civil War, Moses Barber refused to pay what he considered to be unfair taxes to the U.S. government. David Mizell allegedly responded by taking some of Barber's cattle to compensate for the unpaid debt. As legend has it, Moses Barber said that if David Mizell ever came near his property again, he would be killed. Early in 1870, Judge John Mizell issued an arrest warrant for Moses Barber based on a complaint by Robert Bullock for an unpaid bill of sale for cattle. Sheriff David Mizell was sent to arrest Mose. David Mizell, his son Will, and David's brother Morgan went to Barber property at Bull Creek where David Mizell was shot and killed. As he lay dying, David Mizell asked that his death not be avenged. His brother John had other plans. Judge John Mizell ordered that members of the Barber family be arrested or killed. As many as 13 people were killed as part of the Barber-Mizell family feud, Moses Barber left the area. This is something that these families have kept secret for a very long time. Joy Wallace Dickinson. I mean, if somebody did participate in a revenge killing or something, they, they didn't write a letter about it, they didn't put it in a diary, they didn't... You know, it, what's, what's known is pretty much just what got passed down in family lore. Today, the Barber and Mizell families get along much better. Mary Ida Bass Barber Shearheart and her husband Bill Barber had four children, bringing both sides of the feud together. I remember when I married my husband, they all said, well, the Barber-Mizell feud's back on again. <laughs> For more information on the Barber-Mizell family feud of 1870, watch Episode 7 of the television series Florida Frontiers. Check your local PBS schedule. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Visit us anytime on the web at myfloridahistory.org to find out about upcoming events, listen to archived editions of this program, and much more. That's myfloridahistory.org. Joining us now is Ben DiBiase, Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. Ben, today we're looking at one of the earliest descriptions of Ponce de Leon's visits to Florida in the early 16th century. Yeah, that's right, Ben. Today we're looking at uh, what is commonly referred to as Decadas. It was a four-volume uh, set published between 1601 and 1615 by Antonio de Herrera. And Herrera was a Spanish historian uh, born in 1549. So uh, he was born long after the Ponce de Leon expedition, uh, but was living through what is known as the golden uh, uh, age in Spanish exploration. Uh, and the Spanish monarchy uh, enjoyed quite a bit of power in the New World, specifically the West Indies and, of course, Florida being part of that world. Uh, Herrera began collecting and writing a lot of this history, uh, the history of the Indies, and he was known for using many original source material. 
uh, he had access to a lot of the official Spanish archives uh, that uh, that he relied on to produce this enormous volume. Now, as I said, it was published in four volumes. It took him uh, almost 15 years to complete. Now, this is one volume and, and several other studies that he did on the on the history of the Indies, but it became the authoritative account uh, of all uh, Spanish exploration, uh, specifically during the, the uh, uh, 16th century. So beginning, um, actually beginning with the Columbus expeditions in the 15th century, all the way up through the late 16th century. Uh, and quite a bit, of course, uh, occurred during that period. Now, modern scholars will, will sort of take this account with, with a grain of salt, because it was written by uh, someone who was the uh, served in the royal court under Philip II and later Philip III. Um, so he was a bit biased. Uh, he he uh, certainly painted the conquistadors in, in a certain light uh, that was uh, a bit more flattering than I think many modern historians might look at it. Um, however, the material being, uh, because it was based on, on a lot of the primary source material, a lot of the original log books uh, and the accounts that were submitted to the Spanish monarchy after these expeditions, um, we can uh, discern quite a bit of information uh, and, and because, uh, especially in the 16th century, there's um, very little original material, um, this is still a, a major component in the uh, historiography of early colonial Florida history. And here in your collection, you have the first English translation of Herrera's text, and, and this book is from 1725? That's right. It was published in between 1725 and 1726 uh, by an English scholar. His name was Captain John Stevens. And Stevens was uh, probably most well-known for providing his uh, English translation of the Don Quixote uh, story. Uh, but in 1725, he tackled uh, Decadas, which up to that point had not been fully translated into English. So what we're looking at today, uh, this is an original first edition by Stevens, uh, published in 1725. And he actually broke it up into six volumes. So uh, what I have in my hand now is volume two. Uh, and this covers uh, from about uh, 1500 to about 1525. Now, uh, as I mentioned before, this is the history of the Indies, and the Indies at that time covered all of North and South America, uh, the uh, Greater and Lesser Antilles, uh, the Central American uh, Spanish uh, colonial settlement. So uh, he talks about Cortez, he talks about uh, Navarrez, he talks about, of course, Ponce de Leon, uh, who landed uh, and discovered Florida in 1513. Uh, and this is the original binding, so we're looking at, uh, it's in fairly good condition, actually. It's got a Leather-bound, uh, leather-bound cover measures about five and a half by eight inches, uh, and I'm going to open up actually to uh, uh, this is book one, uh, it, chapters uh, five and six, and and I'll, I'll read just briefly uh, a passage about the original discovery of Florida. Now this is interesting because Herrera's account is really the only primary source account we have for Ponce de Leon's 1513 expedition. Now, I said this was published in 16, between 1601 and 1615, uh, over a century after Ponce de Leon uh, had first discovered Florida and, of course, named uh, uh, named the landmass La Florida. Uh, and the 1725 translation uh, was published a century after the original. So here we are, two centuries removed from the original material. Uh, but again, it's, it gives us kind of an interesting glimpse into that expedition. So I'll just read briefly a, a passage from the book. It says here, quote, On Sunday the 27th, being Easter Day, in Spanish called Pascua de Flores, they saw an island and passed by. Monday the 28th, they held on 15 leagues the same way as they had on Wednesday. When the weather proving foul, they stood till the 2nd of April, west-northwest, the water growing shoal, till they came to nine fathoms, a league from the land, which in, was in 30 degrees, eight minutes. They ran along the coast, seeking some harbor, and at night anchored near the shore in eight fathoms of water. 
Believing that land to be an island, they named it Florida because it appeared very delightful, having many pleasant groves, and it was all level, as also because they discovered it at Easter, which it has been said the Spaniards call Pascua de Flores, of Florida. Juan Ponce went ashore to discover and take possession, unquote. So this is, again, what we base uh, everything we know about uh, that original expedition is derived from the Herrera account that was published in 1601. Yeah, and a few years ago when we commemorated the 500th anniversary of Ponce de Leon naming our state, there were a lot of people consulting this text trying to figure out where exactly Ponce landed. Yeah, that's right. And it's still a, uh, a hotly debated issue uh, because you can, uh, you can disseminate a lot of information from this original text. But again, this is the first English translation. It has, however, been translated several more times. And there are, uh, I think, much better and more accurate uh, translations that were uh, done in the 20th and 21st centuries. Uh, but again, even going back to the original Spanish text, uh, so much of that information uh, can be debated because uh, this was published a century after the Ponce de Leon expedition. Uh, it is believed to have been based on the original logs that Ponce de Leon kept, uh, but those original logs uh, have since been lost, were probably destroyed. So we really have no um, primary source material. Everything we know uh, is really based on uh, essentially a secondary source, although uh, given Herrera's position in the uh, Spanish court, we believe that he probably did. And, and, and if you read the narrative too, it's corroborated by a lot of uh, other information that we do have primary source material for. So uh, it's believed to be fairly accurate, but what can be debated are a lot of the coordinates. Uh, now, Herrera gives uh, several coordinates for uh, land masses and uh, uh, points of land and islands that when uh, translated into uh, contemporary coordinates, uh, they're, they're a little bit off. So uh, there's certainly a lot of room for discussion, and, and that discussion will probably go on uh, perpetually, I'm sure. Okay. Well, thanks, Ben. Sure. Thank you. Ben DiBiase is Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. And it's a fair wind Blowing warm out of the south on my shoulder I guess I'll set a course and go This is Florida Frontiers. Pelican Island is the oldest national wildlife refuge in the United States. Osmer Lewis, a student in the public history program at the University of Central Florida, has more. Pelican Island was actually the very first national wildlife refuge, and it was, a, it was actually considered a bird sanctuary by President Theodore Roosevelt. With that, that basically became the national park system, and um, it was the actual first one that had been declared as a bird sanctuary with a game warden that was actually paid a dollar a month to cover and sanction the birds on the island. That was Steve Massey, president of the Pelican Island Preservation Society, who spoke with me about the relationship the Preservation Society has with Pelican Island. On Florida's east coast, there's a five-acre wildlife refuge off the Indian River known as Pelican Island. The refuge was established to protect its exotic bird population, but the reason why the refuge is special is because when founded in 1903, it became the United States' first national wildlife refuge. Over a century later, Mr. Massey and the Pelican Island Preservation Society are still working to help protect the refuge. 
what happened was there were a lot of landowners and people that wanted this refuge to become a reality. So there was a gentleman by the name of Paul Tritak, and he was kind of the refuge manager at the time. And so when PIPS was formed, Pelican Island Preservation Society, that group of individuals worked with others and with the help of being, some lands being donated, and plus there was a, a 1% sales tax, and land, there was a land trust in agreement with the federal government donating money that these uh, grove owners actually, instead of selling their land to developers, were allowed, allowed Pelican Island Refuge to become what it is today. Otherwise, it would have been another big development along the Indian River because, you know, it's, it's very popular and it's beautiful. So there were three or four or five individuals that basically worked very hard at donating some of their lands and helping with uh, all of those acquisitions to keep the refuge, you know, as it is today. Aside from environmental projects, the Preservation Society also highlights Pelican Island's history through their annual Pelican Island Wildlife Festival. The festival is held every year. I think the first one was set up in 1993. And it started because a group of individuals wanted to um, kind of get ready for the centennial where the uh, Secretary of the Interior came to Sebastian. So that all kind of started the, the festival. And the festival then has been going on ever since. We basically have between five and 7,000 people come to our festival. It's basically an educational opportunity for people to learn about Pelican Island. We have Joe Wygan, who is a, a Teddy Roosevelt impersonator come and he's um stays in character the entire day and then we also have a lot of the uh, fish and wildlife refuges come and talk about what's going on at the different ones in the state of florida for history enthusiasts the festival has numerous activities but nothing more exciting than the chance to meet joe wygan portraying president teddy roosevelt joe goes nationally and portrays uh, Teddy Roosevelt at tons of different uh, festivals and things throughout the United States. But locally, when he comes here, he also has a presentation at the local historical society for people that also um, don't make always the festival, but they come and listen to him the night before, and he talks about Teddy Roosevelt and gives an hour or two presentation. He also goes to some of our local schools, and the kids, like I said, they love him. Um, he's just in full character as Teddy Roosevelt. And he also visits um, and does things with the Boys and Girls Club sometimes, too, when he's here. The Pelican Island Preservation Society also has many projects in mind for future improvements to the wildlife refuge. Trying to plan on possibly having some tours of taking people up to the Pelican Island on some, uh, on, on some trolleys. We also have some trams on the, re on the refuge itself, and we give tram tours and they can actually tour um, the refuge at no cost on these trams. Um, one thing I do want to tell you about Pelican Island and, and the fact that we do have a, um, a centennial walk. On the centennial walk, there are like six or maybe six or seven hundred planks. And the very first plank, that is the 1903 plank representing Pelican Island. So you'll see every National Wildlife Refuge um, represented there. And then we're also in the process of building some housing for uh, traveling biologists. And we also have plans for um, UCF students come and spend like a week 
doing things on the refuge, and we always celebrate that. I'm Osmer Lewis, a student with the Public History Program at the University of Central Florida, and you are listening to Florida Frontiers. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us right here again next week. Until then, you can visit us anytime on the web at myfloridahistory.org or listen as a podcast. Production assistance for Florida Frontiers comes from Ben DiBiase and Robert Casanello. The program is edited by John White. Have a great week. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Cultural Affairs, the Florida Council of Arts and Culture, and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund, the Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, and by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach.